The reading comes from Acts 2.14, 22 through 24, 32 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Thanks, Ellie. Whoa. You got a first ever applause in a Presbyterian ministry. That does not happen very much. Um, Thank you all for being here. My name is John Trapp, and I'm the campus minister for RUF. Glad you all are here with us tonight. If this is your first, year, first time here, uh, welcome. Especially glad to have you here. Just to tell you a little bit about what RUF is, uh, we're a ministry that believes that all of us need God's grace. And because of that, that means that uh, whether this is your first time at any kind of religious thing, if you grew up in the church, um, What we believe is that none of us are so good that we're beyond the need of God's grace, but also no one can be so bad as being beyond the reach of God's grace. And so um, I hope that you'll see that even tonight as we look once more at this person named Peter. Peter, as we've looked at this whole semester, this sermon series has been Jesus Through the Eyes of Peter. We've seen this guy who has time and time again demonstrated that he is a very fearful person. And tonight we're going to see Peter act very differently than he ever has before. And I want you to ask yourself, why is that? And what that might mean for you too. So before we dive into that, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Lord, thanks so much for this time to be together. And Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the thing I want you to think about tonight. What are you afraid of? What's the thing you're afraid of? Um, I typed in Google to see just what some of the auto-filled suggestions are, you know? So I typed in Fear of, and then just what, what drops down. Anyone want to guess what number one was? 
holes. <laughs> some people say, I have that. <laughs> it's called, so of course then I had to click on what fear of holes is. It's called uh, trypophobia, and it's totally a thing. And after like scanning what a trypophobic person would be afraid of, I kind of get it. It's weird, like lots of tiny clusters of little holes are somehow, for some reason, unsettling. So you can do that Google deep dive some other time when you're looking to procrastinate. But a few other things that people are apparently afraid of, according to Google, fear of holes. Second thing, God. Third, heights. Bees. The walking dead. Long words. Relatable. Clowns, obviously. Thirteen. And being alone. Those were the things that Google suggested that I check out. When I was a kid, my fear, the Phantom of the Opera. I'm not kidding. Some of you, you, you don't believe me. I, I, I liked show tunes when I was a kid. I was a really cool kid, in case you didn't know that. And uh, my family, my dad for some reason bought this CD of the, the Phantom of the Opera, and I just started listening to it religiously. And is my mic doing something weird? Is that me? Or is this my, okay, who knows? I'll just keep going. So me and the Phantom had this thing, and I had pretty much memorized the whole play because I listened to it so much, and I'm not going to regale you right now, but if you ever want it, I'm happy to whip that out. But I was convinced whenever I was in a room by myself that the Phantom was going to get me. And I kind of lived in, like if if my dad asked me to go get something out of my bedroom, I would run as fast as I humanly could into the room, grab the thing, and run out because I thought the phantom was going to get me. And it was just this thing in my head, and I have dreams about it, nightmares about it. It led me finally, one day I'm sitting in church, and our preacher is preaching, and I wasn't listening. And so I flipped in the back of the Bible because I knew, I'm like eight or nine, I knew that in the back of the Bible there's this thing called a concordance and you can look up a word um, and it'll show you where it talks about that word in the Bible. It's kind of this cool thing. So I looked up afraid in the concordance. And the first verse it suggested that I look, look at was Psalm 56, 4. Flip over to Psalm 56, 4. And it said, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? the NIV version. What can mortal man do to me? I I won't be afraid. And I didn't really understand the verse totally. I didn't understand the context that David's writing this when he's like imprisoned by the Philistines. But somehow the idea comforted me that the existence of a God who is stronger than the thing that I fear is that he, and he's on my side. And it brought me comfort And I think Peter gets like an infinity infinity dose of that in his life. And it's why we get him doing what he's doing here in this passage. So I want to look at three things tonight. One, the reason to fear. Two, the reason to hope. And three, so what? The reason to fear, the reason to hope, and so what? So the reason to fear... There's a couple reasons to, fe- to be afraid in this passage, the people who are watching what's happening. Um, the pa- what happens right before 
Acts 2.14, the context of where Peter is standing up and talking is this is the day of Pentecost. And it's a really important day, um, really throughout the whole story of Scripture. Because at Pentecost, it was a feast that the Jews would have every year. It was an annual feast. Penta meaning 50. And it was, it was held 50 days after Passover. It was also called the, um, the Feast of the Harvest. And so you'd have people gather from all over in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Harvest. And so you have people watching Peter stand up and preach. And there's people from Europe, from northern Africa, people from modern-day Turkey and Saudi Arabia, literally north, south, east, west, people from all over who have gathered. And this incredible thing happens. This thing that Jesus had told his disciples he was going to do after he ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes and it comes upon all the disciples and they begin speaking and all these people who are from all over the world begin hearing the gospel message in their language. And what's happening is the curse that kind of befell all the way back with what happened at the Tower of Babel early on in the, in the whole story of the Bible in the book of Genesis when everyone speaks the same language and then they begin sinning against God and against one another and so God confuses their language and people are dispersed and scattered. This is being unwound now. Because now what has happened is Jesus has sent his spirit and no longer are people only being, people. we're not just being reconciled to God, we're also seeing that what Jesus' kingdom work is to do is he's also reconciling nation to nation people to one another. We just sang about it in the church's one foundation. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. That what Jesus is doing is he's reconciling these people together, but all these folks walk up on what's happening and they're, they're like, what is this? They're confused. But there's more to fear here. Because what Peter does is he stands up and he, he tells them the gospel. And the gospel message is inherently a confrontational message. Peter begins making truth claims. In verse 32 he says, we are all witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Peter is preaching the divinity of this man who said, not much... Not many days before, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes these bold, exclusive truth claims about his divinity and his divinity alone. And now Peter is standing and he's attesting to it. And maybe, maybe you're here at RUF and you haven't been here much and you're like, man, that's, that sounds like pretty extreme that you would make exclusive truth claims about your religion. Like, we live in a more pluralistic society now. Like, there's, we, now that we are, our world is kind of globalized a bit more and we see, you know, all these different religions and that there's, there seems maybe there's trails of truth that all of them have. Maybe they're all just getting to the same God. But what the gospel message says is no. There's only one way. And Peter is standing and he's, he's giving a confrontational message in a place which by the way if there's any time that was more pluralistic 
in the history of the world that was more pluralistic than the, than the culture and setting that we're in now, it was during the Pax Romana, historically speaking, where you had all kinds of nations and peoples, and each nation who worshiped kind of their own God, and their you know, ethnicities are tied to what their religion is. And Peter stands up in this very pluralistic society in the middle of this big city, and he begins making claims. And he's not philosophizing. He's not talking about theories and a new way of life. What he's saying is he's giving eyewitness testimony of something that he saw. See, this is what's different about Christianity is that it's based upon, and it, and it really rises or falls on whether, this is not, whether or not this is historically true and what Peter is claiming really happened. Like, did Jesus rise from the dead or not? And if he did, it changes everything. And it's compelling to the people who listen to it. Look, Peter is not like a trained seminarian. This dude's a fisherman. He's not necessarily super eloquent. And yet, 3,000 people respond to the gospel call of Peter, even though the gospel message is something, in some ways, to fear because it's confrontational. It confronts us. Not only that, it threatens our way of life. The gospel does. I remember my first year, um, I started doing ministry around um, UT. I was still finishing up seminary. I remember sitting down with um, a guy who is in a fraternity that shall not be named, um, but it is represented in this room tonight, so that kind of limits the number. Um, but... The, uh, the guy sits down with me, and he's like, so who's like in these Bible study, this Bible study that you're leading over at Harden House? And I like start telling him the people who are in it. And he's like, whoa, that girl's in that Bible study? And I'm like showing him the name. I'm like, yeah, man. Like, he's like, I can't believe she's in that Bible study. I'm thinking like, dude, I can't believe you've been coming to my Bible study. But anyway, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're talking, and he goes, okay, let's just, can I just cut to the chase? He was like, I've always just kind of wanted to cut to the chase on this question. I was like, sure, come on, let's go. He was like, okay. Can I have sex with whoever I want to and smoke pot every night and still be a Christian? The person who asked me this is uh, Zach Smelling. Go on. No, I'm just kidding. It's not <laughs> but, <laughs> no. but, uh, I'm just kidding. It was his older brother. No, it's not, not, not him either. But, he asks me this question, and you know what he's getting at, though? Because he, he's making an honest assessment. Because what he's, what he's realizing is, if I do this, it's going to threaten my way of life. Like, if, if I actually begin agreeing that the resurrection of Jesus happened, that kind of changes everything. So he's, like, counting the cost. And he, he's kind of unsure he wanted to give up his own little coping mechanisms that he had for dealing with fear. Because here's the deal. I think, I think at the heart of a lot of our sin is it's, a lot of our out, kind of more external sins are really just coping mechanisms to deal with our fear our deeper fears. For instance, why do we gossip? 
I think one of the reasons that we gossip is because deep down we are afraid of not measuring up. We're afraid of not measuring up, and so we reassure ourselves that we are better than others by gossiping. Why is there such a struggle with pornography? That's a, there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think part of it, at the core, is that we long for intimacy, but we are afraid of the commitments required for real human-to-human intimacy. We're afraid of that, and we're also afraid that we will be rejected when we are intimately known. And so our coping mechanism for getting the kind of intimacy that we want is that we turn to something that ultimately doesn't fulfill us. Why is FOMO such a thing, the fear of missing out? I mean, it is a thing. The University of Texas is fueled on FOMO. (laughs) We are afraid. We're afraid of our lives being devoid of meaning. And a lot of us just find meaning in entertainment and like the next fun thing. And so if I'm not getting that, then my life is kind of feels meaningless and I'm I'm, I'm afraid of missing out on that. I'm afraid of not being entertained or being overlooked. So I'm going to give in to FOMO. Why is substance abuse so appealing? Someone sits down and tells me that they have, that they're struggling with substance abuse. My first inclination is not to be like, okay, well, we've got to get you to, we've got to figure out like how to stop this kind of external behavior. I want to know more like, where is that coming from? Like, what, what is it that you are self-medicating for? Um, why is it so appealing to numb your fear and anxiety and your social anxiety on the weekends with that? Like why we look to, we look to constant consumption of things to make us feel better because we're afraid. I think, I think this is a, like mega true with guys and, and girls too, but I see this so much with guys see it a lot in myself. We're, we're so afraid of feeling empty that we just consume and consume and consume. And then we deflect, we deflect our consumption and our fears about not having enough by just joking about it or by making everything a joke. We turn everything into a joke because we're afraid to be face-to-face with our fears. Our fears of not measuring up, our fears of not measuring up to our, our dad's or the standard that we think that we have to meet, our fear of not being good enough to be desirable or memorable, our fear of not being liked. I'm so afraid of not being liked. This week, there's this lady on our street. She runs literally up and down our street. It feels like all day long. I see her all the time. She's running up. She doesn't do laps or anything. She just gets on our block and goes up and down and up and down. And every time I pass her, I'm like, you know, like, wave. This is a small town Alabama boy. This is what we do, y'all. Wave. And she, like, she doesn't really wave back that much. And she kind of looks ticked off. And I don't, I was like, I did not understand. Am I driving badly? Is, is she annoyed with how I drive? Sometimes I kind of get into the middle of the road when I'm coming back to my house. Like, I need, so I'm, like, tightening up that. I'm trying and. And I finally said, I was like, Chrissy, why does that lady look hacked off every time I wave to her? And she's like, John, she's been running for the last three hours. She's miserable. I was like, that's a great point. 
It's not all about me, actually. Wow, shocker. But we're so afraid of not being liked. Why are, why are we so stressed out about school right now? This is the time. This is the season. It's November, y'all. It's coming. Like, Thanksgiving break's a couple weeks away. Finals is after that. Like, this is, like, crunch time. Why are we so afraid and stressed and anxious? Is it because that we're really, we're afraid that if we don't get that GPA, that maybe we won't be okay, or maybe we won't be approved, or maybe we won't be secure financially or in our vocation, and so we stress about it. And our fear rules us. And by the way, this this is just like a side note. This will totally suck all the joy out of your college experience, being anxious about that all the time. Like, you guys might not realize this. You have more free time now than you ever will. Again, says the man with his fifth child on the way. But like, it's true even if you don't have any kids. I remember I was trying to, there's a student who just graduated. He's living in Austin. And uh, he asked to get coffee with me. I was like, sure. I sent him three dates, three times I can meet, which usually for you guys, like, y'all can, you know, that always works. He's like, I can't meet any of those times. Everything that you told me about me being less busy in college has now come true. I was like, yeah, dude, that's what I was trying to tell you all this whole time. Like, go enjoy your friends. Go in, God has given you, go make friends. He's put us here in this place, and you, you have a really great time. And it's a unique time in your life to, I don't know, enjoy people and begin building the habit of not finding, um, of not counting on all your fears being assuaged and fixed by being on the ball with everything. Because all those plates can't be spinning at the same time. And so if you're tired of being afraid and you're wondering if there's a better way, my second point is that there is a reason not to fear. There's a reason to hope. And it's, look, can we just admit that it's kind of hilarious that Peter's the person who's preaching the sermon? This is the first Christian sermon ever preached. Peter stands up and preaches it. He starts exegeting the Old Testament and talking about how it points to Jesus. He's doing, I mean, it's, it's incredible. And he's got all these people gathered around. But it's hilarious that it's him who's preaching it. Because Peter literally has been acting like the biggest coward ever. As we've seen all this semester. Peter's the guy who walks out onto the water. And as he's doing this amazing thing, he stops looking at Jesus and gets really afraid and begins sinking. Peter is the guy that right after he assesses and confesses that Jesus is the Messiah... And Jesus says, you're right, Peter, I am. And then Jesus begins explaining what that means. Peter, that means I'm going to go die. I'm going to be crucified. And Peter gets afraid of that. He doesn't want that. And he rebukes Jesus. Peter is the same guy that we see at the fire, at the night that Jesus is arrested. And a little girl walks up to him and says, aren't you his disciple? And he denies Jesus three times. He's afraid. He's a coward. And yet, it's this guy, Peter, who's telling this, 
he's standing up and telling everyone this about Jesus. Why is he doing this? Okay, Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke. He's also the author of the book of Acts. It's kind of a two-volume set that he writes to this, to this man named Theophilus. And Luke records this kind of interesting detail when Peter's denying Jesus that we only get in the book of Luke. Luke's a doctor. He's always kind of like recording things that are happening in like the physical world and things that he, you know, just a, I don't know, a doctor would observe. But in this instance, he records that when the third time that Jesus denied, or that, that Jesus is denied by Peter, the third time that Peter says, I don't know that man, that Jesus turns and he looks at Peter and Peter makes eye contact with Jesus as the rooster crows, just like Jesus said it would. And I want you to think about what Peter saw in that moment. Peter denies his best friend that he's been with for the last three years. And as he's doing that, his best friend turns and looks at him. And what Peter sees is a man whose face is purple with bruises. Whose eyes are surely swollen shut and lip bleeding. Who's already had the crown of thorns set and shoved into his scalp whose face is matted with sweat and the spit and mucus of other people who spat on him. And in that moment when Peter is denying and Jesus looks upon him, what is incredible to think is that Jesus, seeing him in his failure, still goes to the cross for him. He goes and dies for this man. And here's the thing. Jesus had to go do that for Peter because he loved him. But he also does it. The people that, the people that, um, that Peter's talking to here in this sermon, they have one more reason to be afraid. You know, what it, you know why it is? Did you catch it? Look at verse 23 again. They are the people who crucified Jesus. They are part of the crowd of people who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, just 50 some odd days before. <laughs> These people who saw Jesus do mighty works and wonder, wonders, Peter said. You saw him, you saw with your own eyes what he did, and yet they killed him. Those people killed him. And the same is true, the same is true for us. That song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, says, it was my sin that held him there on the cross until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Here's the thing. Just like those people that Peter is preaching to are guilty of crucifying the Son of God, I am too. It was my sin that held him there that had to be paid for. And Jesus willingly went to the cross for fearful cowards like me and like Peter. For people who turn on Jesus in their fear over and over and over again. And now, here is Peter, and he's preaching the gospel to those people. If you are one of those people tonight, I want you to know the gospel is for you. 
The good news of what Jesus has done is for you. And now Peter is holding out forgiveness. Verse 38, they say, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Y'all, how is it? How is it that a guy who just a few weeks before was lying to a little girl because he was afraid. How is it that he is now standing in front of the same people who crucified Jesus and saying, you crucified him. You killed the son of God. How can someone become that brave all of a sudden? The reason is two things. Peter saw the resurrected Christ. Christianity falls or rises on whether or not this is historically true. This guy and all these disciples who've been acting like scared cowards all throughout the gospel accounts. The gospels do not shy away from painting them in a bad light. But now all of a sudden, Peter is standing boldly proclaiming an offensive gospel because he knows that it's true. It's true. It's a fact. Peter has seen it. The resurrection is true. And not only has he seen that it's true, but he has known the love of a God who became a man to die for him. See, he's been loved now. He knows that love is real. It's why John, later on, in 1 John 4, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. It's 1 John 4, 18. John says, there's no fear in love. Peter has been, he's been loved perfectly and now he knows, he knows. He doesn't have to be afraid. So what? Last point, what that means To illustrate my so what, let me tell you a quick story. This is unbelievable, but it's totally true. Cade Kimsey, don't doubt my stories like you did last time. You told me I was a liar last week, y'all. Pray for Cade. Um, so in, uh, in 1944, a 21-year-old British flight sergeant named Nicholas Alchemade was on a bombing mission over Berlin during World War II. And Nicholas, he was a, he's a rear gunner uh, on a four-engine Avro Lancaster bomber. They had just run their mission. They're flying back to England when, out of nowhere, a German fighter comes and just strafes the side of their plane. And the plane that Nicholas is in bursts into flames. And the call to eject is made in the plane. But here's the problem. See, he's a tail gunner. And it was such a tight confines in the space where he would be with his gun is that he didn't have his parachute on him. It was usually behind him at his feet. He turns to look at his parachute, and his parachute is engulfed in the flames. Toast. Can't use it. So now he has one of two choices. 
either die in this plane and burn to death or jump out 18,000 feet up in the air. So he jumps. Jumps out of the plane. He falls 120 miles per hour towards the ground, hurtling towards the ground. He fell for six minutes, which is, by the way, is like longer than I've been telling this story. He falls. He passes out as he falls. And three hours later, he wakes up. And he's got some bruises, a few scratches. He's looking up, and he sees that he's fallen through a canopy of trees in a forest in Germany. And he's fallen into snow. Big old drift of snow. And he's lying there with a few scrapes and bruises and a twisted knee and no broken bones. And he's like, am I dead? Is this what the afterlife is? <laughs> and then the German Gestapo shows up and arrests him. And Nicholas is like, Hey, guys, what's up? He's overjoyed to see them. And they take him, and he's a POW for 14 months until he's freed. But do you know why he's overjoyed? Because now he knows that the Nazis aren't the real enemy. Death is the enemy. He has avoided death. And so... These people who used to look like the scary enemy, are, and now he's, he's like, whatever. I just fell off a plane without a parachute and survived, which apparently there's other stories of this happening to people. This is like a fairly common occurrence. <laughs> you should also Google that sometime. It's amazing. <laughs> know what I did this afternoon. I did a lot of Googling. Anyway, look, Peter has just seen Jesus look down the barrel of the gun of everything we're most afraid of. Death. And death, he says, could not hold him. Jesus burst the cords that would constrain him of death. He conquered it. He defeated it. He beat it, and Peter saw it. He saw and witnessed the resurrected Christ. And said, so you know what? Uh, Peter's not afraid anymore. He's just not. So he's going to tell people the news that this is true, and that guess what? They don't have to be afraid anymore either. You know what? You killed him. Yeah, you crucified Jesus, but guess what? He'll forgive you. He'll love you. He did, he did with me. Like Jesus walked into the teeth of what he was most afraid of. The night and in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is so afraid of going to death, he asks his father, is there any other way that we can do this? He says, if this cup can pass for me, Father, may this cup pass. And the answer is a pregnant silence. And you know what Peter's doing during this time, by the way? He's asleep. Jesus has asked him three times, will you stay, I'm, I'm really afraid, will you stay awake with me and pray? And Peter keeps falling asleep. Can you imagine, like imagine you're going to get like a quadruple bypass surgery, just theoretically, and like 
you call your friend and you're like, hey, I have that big surgery tomorrow. Could you come over here and pray with me? I'm feeling kind of scared. And then they don't show up and you call them again. And they're like, hey, could you come over? And they're like, sorry, man, I fell asleep. That's okay, just come over. And then they like do it again. And they do it again. You're like, this is the worst friend ever. <laughs> Peter was the worst friend ever. And Jesus died for him. So Peter's like, hey, I've seen the resurrected Christ. This is true. You don't have to be afraid. So, here, so what for you? So what that means for you is that you don't have to be afraid. If the resurrection is true, you don't have to be afraid of not making the best grades. You don't have to be afraid of not always being liked. You don't have to be afraid of the Phantom of the Opera. Little boy John Trapp. God is worried about praising. God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Death. You don't have to be afraid of death. Because one day, Jesus is going to make everything right. His resurrection is the first fruit of ours. That's what Paul says. We will all be resurrected and given new and eternal life without any pain or anything to be afraid of. And that's, Peter sees it. It's true. It's real. And it's offered to you. And so what that means, you know what that means for the early church? There were real tangible things that this meant that they applied to their life. The reason that the church exploded in the first couple centuries is that the church really believed that the resurrection was true. And so it means that it meant that they started living their lives differently. A couple, a couple quick applications and I'm done. One of the things that, they, that the early church started to do is that they were crazy generous with their money. Like selling their possessions because like, guess what? All of this stuff is passing away and the resurrection is coming. So we don't, this stuff is not that important. How about instead, we're going to sell, they sold a lot of their stuff and gave it to people who needed it. They shared it. They were crazy gracious with their money. Crazy gracious with their time. Crazy gracious with their love. A common practice during the first century, if you had a baby that you didn't want, they didn't have abortions very much back then, but what you would do is you take your baby and then you go leave it in the garbage dump and you just leave it. That's what they would do. Do you know who started combing through garbage dumps and adopting babies? Christians. Because they saw that they'd been adopted by God, their father. And that the resurrection was true and that this is another person who needs to hear that, who's valuable and important. So yes, guess what also that meant? It also meant that they were crazy accepting of all kinds of people. It meant that all kinds of people, whether they were of all sorts of different ethnicities, no matter where they were on the social hierarchy, whether they were rich or whether they were a slave, everyone was welcome. Because the resurrection was true. Because Jesus had done this for all sorts of people, for all kinds of people. He had sent them and commissioned them out into the world to tell people this. You know what else it meant? It meant that they weren't afraid of dying. Like Christians died well in the first three centuries. And it did not make sense to a lot of people. Like it confused the emperors. Because they're like feeding them the lions and lighting them on fire and they're singing. Why are they doing that? Because the resurrection is true. Because there's a better life to come. We get so sad in our lives because we want heaven on earth now. It's not coming now, but it is coming. The resurrection is true. Jesus rose from the dead and he offers resurrection life 
to you. How do you get it? Peter tells us, repent. Repent and believe. Come to Jesus. Repent. Ask for his forgiveness. Guess what? He forgives all kinds of cowards like me and like Peter. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks so much that your grace was embodied and incarnate and revealed through your son, Jesus, that he actually, with his very blood, won and paid for what we could not, and that he gives us his righteousness by faith in him and not by our works. So we pray that you would help us to believe that the resurrection is true and that we don't have to be afraid. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.